This is Storage Unpacked. Subscribe at storageunpacked.com. This is Chris Evans with a Storage Unpacked podcast. I'm here today with two guests from Ondat. I've got Alex Kirkup and Chris Milstead. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Really good. It's amazing to be here. Same here, and uh, much better now the weather seems to have uh, taken a bit turn for the warmer side uh, over here as well. Don't think anybody's disappointed to see the back of the weather, Chris. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not this time around. Apart from some kids probably who like to do a bit of snowing. Yeah, sorry, the sledging. snowman's looking a little bit sorry for itself, but apart from that, it's all good. Yeah, excellent. Right, well, we're here to discuss a report that we've just um, published jointly. Well, you published it, but um, I was involved in doing a lot of the work for that. And it's going to be an interesting conversation, this this recording, because instead of me interviewing guests who have done something or got something or, uh, you know, promoting something, whatever it happens to be, it's actually me who has done quite a lot of the work involved in this, but I'm actually the host as well. So that's going to make this an interesting conversation. Uh, but before we go dive into that, Alex, you, give every, everybody a little bit of background about the company, because obviously, possibly since the last time we recorded with you, the company name has changed and it might just give, be good to give people a refresh. Yeah, that's a good point. So so on that was previously known as Storage OS. We, we rebranded just over a year ago now. And this was around our renewed focus on um, the developers and the DevOps uh, environment and, you know, this this whole shift left where, where effectively we're providing this software-defined uh, cloud-native storage platform for developers and DevOps to work in Kubernetes. And so this, this report is actually all about running real-life workloads uh, in Kubernetes and understanding how how those real live workloads uh, behave with different storage platforms and it probably you know it's probably worth prefacing this with the fact that about a year ago chris you you, you worked really hard with us um, on a number of um, uh, additional performance benchmarking reports which which are really hard to do but we got we got um, those reports um, based on synthetic testing so, so this time around, it's all about you know the real life application testing, real life databases, etc., which provides a, a much more kind of interesting view for end users. Yes, exactly. So we did. Uh, I looked it up actually because um, I do do a little bit of research when I try to remember. So I think it was January 2021 we published that. So it seems like quite a long time ago now. But you're right. Yeah. That was very much using FIO to do as you said, synthetic benchmarks, but looking at things like, you know, variable block size, sequential, random IO. And that gives you, I think, one view, but the idea was at some point to migrate on to a bit more real world because we wanted to see what that was going to be going to be like. Um, Chris, from your perspective, what did you think when you saw the results, you know, from the last time round and this time round? What were your sort of first perspectives? Yeah, genuinely um, intrigued to see them because, I mean, uh, until the final report or the draft of the report came through I'd, I hadn't seen any of the results from anything and I just looked at them and I was pleasantly surprised at um, where everything was placed I think the biggest surprise for me was probably the Ceph performance I have to say yeah I was quite surprised that having a back-end object store with a kind of a block storage layer on top of that did as well as it did I mean it that, that was probably the one thing that I looked at and was like was I really sure but the rest of it was um genuinely interesting and genuinely fascinating to look at how real world applications and real world databases and the things that people 
you know, have to spend money on to power and feed and water, you know, the difference in performance you could get just by changing the storage layer in your Kubernetes cluster. Absolutely. Um, Alex, you know, your first thoughts on this? I think it was very interesting because in the Kubernetes world, we do have to deal with this with this environment where we have a high rate of change. But more importantly, we deal with an environment where applications and storage often coexist on the same nodes. Um, and I guess, you know, in the in the VM world, we were quite used to the concept of, of hyper-converged and, you know, making sure that resources get allocated for the for the storage environment. But obviously, what we were what we were seeing here is um, how that coexistence works and how that affects the overall running of the application. So, so I think I think from from my perspective, it was really interesting to understand how the two systems, um, you know, the databases and the storage system running on the shared nodes, uh, interact with each other and and perform or you know perform in terms of um, not just the raw performance numbers but also in terms of the the predictability of the performance and and the deterministic performance yeah excellent we'll get into the detail of the report in a moment we'll, we'll dig down into a little more detail because there's a lot more to un sort of unpack on that in a second but i would like to sort of talk about performance in general first of all and i'm going to throw this one at you chris um, in a second and really you know, my first thought when I look at, look at this is, well, actually, surely all of these SSDs we're buying have got so much performance. Why do we need to bother benchmarking, you know, one product against the other? Surely everybody's going to be okay and we're going to get a decent performance. That's my sort of, you know, you could think of it in those sort of way. I, th I think to some degrees that we're starting to see that. I think with the next generation of workloads especially, when you look at the stats that are coming off the generation five of the NVMe kind of components, it, it, you're going to have a something the size of a credit card, which would do what a you know something the size of four wardrobes would have done 10, 15 years ago. But I don't think that you can just say it doesn't matter about the the layers in between because at the end of the day, it's all about the developers and it's all about the application workloads running on top of them. And you've got to balance these systems. So I think it's not just, you know, the performance benchmarks are great, but I, I chat to customers about building systems as well. And when you look at these hyper-converged systems, you start looking at things like network adapter bandwidth and all these other components as well, because, you know, as these devices get bigger and bigger and you can have a device failure, how much data do you need to start copying around all the, all the nodes in your Kubernetes clusters? So I think there's some real kind of, follow-up kind of thinking to do as well from the performance benchmark is how do I make the best use of these components but also how do I design a system which is designed to give the end user the application resilience they actually want so for me I found the performance benchmark fascinating but it's almost opened up a whole nother set of questions that you need to think about with these newer and faster devices as well. Yeah I think that's the case isn't it Alex you know you look at it and say actually PCIe 5 is coming on board soon. We're starting to see those sort of devices ramp up and we're going to see devices that can do a million IOPS. Now, you're paying for that. So one way or another, you don't want to be leaving resource on the table, especially if you're building out something that is a Kubernetes, like especially Kubernetes, I was going to say, really, because one of the reasons why you're going down that route in the first place is to gain as much efficiency as possible by running as many applications on a cluster with as little overhead compared to, say, VMs. 
That's absolutely right. I think one of the recurring trends uh, that we hear from customers and end users and, and community in general when, when adopting Kubernetes is the amount of density that they get out of their environment. End users are able to pack more containers, more databases, more workloads onto uh, onto a Kubernetes nodes than say they used to be able to do um, with VMs. And, and of course, that means you need more IO density on each node. And we are very fortunate that these new, you know, NVMe, but also in the future, potentially CXL, um, provide these really fast interconnects to exceptionally fast um, storage. And, and as Chris said, you know, we, we're, we're now at the stage where a single device can outperform what used to be a store, an entire storage array just, just a few years back. And I think what we're what we're now struggling with, and, and I think this is where you know container native storage um, differentiates itself, is where we're able to provide additional layers of intelligence on top of that very raw fast storage to provide things like you know high availability with replication and security with encryption, for example, um, and allow you to to maximize that that high density performance. And what this benchmark helps us understand is some of the different attributes like replication and how they affect the the overall performance for example right because we look at storage stats and it's very easy to get overwhelmed and completely misled to be honest right with with the raw specs um and and what we're hoping with this with reports like this and and the huge amount of analysis that goes into these sort of reports is to be able to understand how the different real-life attributes um, like the replication or, for example, you know, the network overhead, et cetera, have on the overall running of the application. Yeah, absolutely. And I think looking at the the way that IRIT technolo technology is going, we're getting cores of, I think, what are the, what are the latest AMDs up to, 96 in the, in the generation they just announced, announced oh, Epic yeah. 4. A uh, huge amount of bandwidth, as you said, CXL coming in. So we're getting the ability to build, I guess, almost like a modern mainframe. And, you know, we're, we're putting a huge amount of workload into a single environment that does require you to make sure that you're not sitting there bottlenecking one part with a, with another because of some inefficient code or some, some challenge there. And I think, especially when we look at the database side of things, from my perspective, I see the latency as probably the most interesting one because in say structured databases the latency has such an impact on the uh, the experience of the end user no that, that's that's absolutely true and i think very often we look at the performance of a storage device and we look at things like you know megabytes per second or or, or indeed gigabytes per second nowadays but in actual fact we also look at the number of operations per second and that is what uh, more accurately reflects the real-life use of um, most of these applications, which very often may not be throughput um, uh, bottlenecked, but bottlenecked on the number of operations they need to do per second. And ultimately, it's the latency between those operations that determines, say, the number of transactions per second that the database can complete. Um, and very often, applications are unable to you fully utilize the huge parallelism that some of these uh, new NVMe devices offer 
um, and and often have lots of serialization and lots of bottlenecks in that respect. So having low latency directly corresponds to the number of database transactions per second that that can be completed and tends to be the ultimate uh, indicator of of the the overall application speed. Yeah. So I think uh, Chris, you know, looking at this in a bit more detail, I think as a vendor, you've got a very interesting challenge coming up because we're going to see, I mean, we're seeing devices that are, what, 16 terabytes now. It's not going to be long before 32 becomes common when we see two terabit uh, die. Then we're going to see devices that could even be up to 100 terabytes in size. So your ability to manage an NVMe device where you can put a high degree of parallelism into each device and you can really drive that value out of it. It's going to be something that users are going to be looking for at the same time as wanting all of the features that they would expect out of a traditional storage platform of resiliency, data protection, you know, uh, encryption, all of those things. So you've got quite an interesting challenge to balance the two together, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the other things as well is also looking at the network bandwidth, as I was saying before. Um, I was chatting to um, a customer the other day and, and we were looking at how much storage they had on the node and they had some like 14 terabytes of storage and a couple of NVMe cards but there were a pair of 10 gigabit network cards and we worked out that to transfer 14 terabytes over 20 gigabits of network theoretically you know the best case scenario was about an hour and a quarter or something like that and that was purely down to physics of how much data can you get down a network link and how much you know how, mm. how fast would that be and, and, and in essence it would probably not even run that fast. But you kind of balance that out with running clusters where you've got lots of nodes. So your you know recovery times are not one-to-one -one and trying to send all that data down one network cable, it's many-to-many. -many. So to your point about you know servers and NVMEs and everything are getting bigger, we've almost got to take a step back and say, okay, well, we might run some of these really massive servers as stateless nodes. But on our storage kind of layer, if you're doing this kind of Kubernetes hyperconverged storage, you need to think about having kind of smaller kind of failure domains. So you need to look at the size of the machines and balance the network storage, memory bandwidth, all of those components together to come up with a cluster that that, that is that is usable by the end users and actually provides the kind of resilience and the, the, the SLAs, SLOs that the end users actually want. Yeah, and I think... Alex, I was just thinking while we were talking about that, while Chris was explaining that, that actually, when we're talking about servers here, a lot of this could also now, or does it also now, apply to the public cloud. So, for instance, you know, your support of, say, AWS and people putting in your set of software into the cloud on NVMe native devices connected to instances. Now you've got even faster networks. You know, you're talking 25 gig, it's going to be 100 gig. It's going to, Those numbers are getting pushed more and more. So you've got a real requirement to architect your your solution to be highly capable of managing uh, that available resource uh, no absolutely you know and you know you and i have been in the industry for a long time it, it's 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 always been one of the things you consider when you're looking at storage systems to what the rebuild times are likely to be and the, and therefore how you architect your connectivity and your you know your your levels of redundancy and so that's also even more important in, in a Kubernetes cluster where you do have a higher rate of change than a typical system where, you know, nodes come and go and can be scaled up and down on, on, on demand and, and, and upgrades are dynamic. So 
you know, there's there's a lot of work. I think it, it kind of factors on two things. One, it's how do you deal with that high rate of change, you know, and, and, and do things like efficiently syncing the deltas between changes, for example, rather than have to do full copies of data, um, which uh, which we architect into into our into our environment. But also, it's exceptionally important not to take any shortcuts, right? Because in these sort of database environments, especially in mission critical system, every block is is important, you know, and a, and a block might be storing, you know, a million dollar transaction or or or, or higher. So so it's also um, important to ensure that you have uh, strong consistency and checksums and can detect when things go wrong but also to make sure that when the database says, hey, Mr. Storage Device, I need you to sync data, that you are actually able to um, acknowledge that the data has been synced to the different replicas for redundancy and has actually hit the permanent media, you know, the, the NVMe disk or, or, or whatever, and, and it's persisted at the point where you acknowledge to the database so, so that you maintain that contract of of uh, of strong consistency with the with the database layer yeah I agree and I think you know looking back at what I've done over the years and you know, the environments I've worked in you know you could not and you would absolutely would be looking to make sure that you, every single IO was dealt with you would never want a situation where an IO was pinned in memory hadn't been flushed or something else had happened that could cause any sort of inconsistency because you, as you said when you're dealing with structured data the risk of losing a transaction or not having that transaction complete properly is almost well you just can't work it out it's too complicated to work it out you know you just don't know the impact the impact could be minor or it could be absolutely enormous as you said it could be the commit of a million dollars or a hundred million dollars worth of a transaction in a financial organization so I think that to me seems to be one of your high your bigger challenges when you're looking at supporting databases is that if if there isn't that strong consistency there on any of these platforms and if there isn't that ability to recover that strong consistency when you have a say a, a node failure or a device failure then you've got a problem so you have to build that into your architecture from day one it it is it, it, it agreed and and it has to be it has to be an integral part of the architecture for you know container native systems which are which are typically shared nothing right where you know we don't have the benefit of for example you know shared memory between nodes or or um you know dedicated hardware interconnects to 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 maintain you know say strong memory consistency between a number of nodes like like you you might have in a in a typical storage array so, so you have to be very, very strict in terms of how you deal with, um, you know, flushing of data and, and persisting of data to to NVMe drives, um, and of course, you know, you, you, we 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 are lucky enough, I guess, that these architectures are supported by by these really fast um, drives that are available nowadays. Yeah, that could be a, t a topic for another day, couldn't it, to talk about the. Uh, architectural differences between running something where you've got shared nothing compared to when you've got shared something, you know, like shared memory, as you said, you know, that's perhaps a really interesting discussion to have if, from an academic sense, just to help people understand. But today, we're not going to do that. We're going to go and look at Indeed. the details of the report and what we actually found here. So 
I'm, I'll kick us off here because effectively, just to help people understand what went on, this is a piece of work where you know we worked together, you and I, we worked out what we wanted to test, as, and I, I mean you as on, on that and me as in me. And I went away and actually ran all of these tests, made sure we, we did it as efficiently and as equitably as possible. And we made sure that we could actually come back with results that showed a, a fair test between each of the different vendors. So there was a lot of design in the testing structure at the very beginning to look at that to make sure that everybody got the same amount of uh, capacity in their nodes everybody had the same networking capability everybody had the same amount of um, resource in the in the cluster and we ran the same test and we ran the test so that the application would be built on the primary node where the initial mirror would be for that particular node and we did a range of tests I'd, obviously we recommend everybody goes and downloads it and looks looks at it but Effectively, we were testing structured databases that look are sort of common in the industry. So things like Postgres, which would give us your structured um, structured SQL database. We we did MongoDB, which would give you the um, the document database, and then we did Redis, which, which would give you more of an in-memory type database. Now, for me, that that you know, making sure that was consistent and the consistent across the board and the process was all correct was really important because the last thing you want anybody to do is come back and say well mm, you know you didn't include this you didn't include that and i think after we did the first set of tests with fio we very much sort of were aware that we needed to make sure that everything was you know a hundred percent clear and i think actually we did a good job and the results i think have proved to be really interesting i think i think so and, and and just look to to echo that the one thing that um, always is at the f forefront of my of my thinking when we're doing these sort of uh, benchmarks is how hard it is to do apples for apples comparisons um, and and how much effort is required um, to do this. You know, not not just not just scientifically and fairly, but but also just just you know. To, to, to set up the technical environments to, to, to get this done and, and, and have them in a very reproducible fashion. So, you know, in that respect, hats off to you, Chris. It's it's been I know it's been a, a labor of love over over many, many months to to uh, to, to to be able to get this done. You know, from 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 my point of view, one of the one of the things that was very interesting was understanding the impact of the overhead of a storage system and its effects on 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 the application. Because of course, you know, the storage systems consume compute and memory, uh, and they and they consume uh, network bandwidth, um, and so they are effectively competing with the same applications use of the compute memory and network. So often that can create, um, one of the interesting things that we learn from this is, is, is how that can create uh, interesting interactions and also affect the predictability of, of IO. So, so one of the, one aspect which, which was interesting in this report was not only, um, you know, the raw numbers in terms of throughput and latency, but also the numbers that you see over time with different percentiles and, and, and looking at sort of the difference between the the median response times, for example, and, and, and looking at some of those outliers. And, and you know, what we saw was that um, uh, controlling the outliers was, was an even harder problem to address. Yeah, Chris, I, I really found that side of it fascinating because First time around, we were looking very much at just raw numbers, throughputs, and looking at what you know what, what we could get out of that in terms of latency, bandwidth, uh, IOPS, all that sort of stuff. This time around, 
it was nice to be able to, because of the benchmark uh, solutions we used, we used the sort of the native ones that come with those different products. It was possible to look at those outlier latencies and see, well, you know, how consistent is this? And to me, that was really fascinating because ONDAC came out really a lot higher than than everybody else or lower than everybody else, depending on which you're looking at it. Let's say better than everybody else. To the extent that I had to go back and look at the data because I wasn't 100% sure that I'd, you know, I'd transcribed it correctly, but I absolutely had. And I found that really interesting because to me, that would be one of my real top 10, if not top five, if not top issues that I'd want absolutely as consistent as possible. I think that determinicity, I think that's a word, um, is absolutely key. Yeah, it is now. I've just made it up, (laughs) official (laughs) trademark of mine. Um, And I remember the conversation with you and I was like, you know, do we get the P90, P99 latency numbers out of this? Because we'd been doing some other testing as well, looking at um, use cases on, you know, managed services and storage in there. And at certain points, you could see when you would exhaust the amount of IO you were allowed to do for a certain period of time. And you could see the result of that that was having on the application. So in this testing, I was very keen to see that just because you can do something well once, do you do it that well over and over and over again? And at the end of the day, if your storage is not responding and your application you know, has to write data to continue to you know, run the next transaction, you know, storage will have a direct impact on your business productivity and how much, you know, how many more application servers, how many more application instances do I need to spin up if I'm going to be waiting for these things to compete to, to complete? How much more other resources do I need to, to paper over the cracks of that? So I was really interested to see that. And I was absolutely, yeah, as you said, really nice to see that, you know, time after time after time on that being at the top of the pile of just giving you that deterministic performance in Kubernetes which is no mean feat given all the other things that are going on in it. Mm. And and Alex, obviously, you'll have been surprised, pleased, not surprised, maybe more pleased that Ondat scored so well compared to the different vendors that are in this test. So, for example, we didn't do Portworx last time around, but we did put it in this time around. Um, and the others were more the open source solutions, but the commercial ones clearly did better than the open source ones. And then Ondat did better in, in some of these tests than, than Portworx did. Yes, that was obviously uh, a very pleasing result. Um, we we generally did not know uh, how the results were going to pan out when we when we started doing these tests, and it was uh, it was something we were um, eagerly awaiting. I think um, you know we we put so much effort um, into into architecting the product and making sure that we have. The lowest overheads with with um, and 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 remove you know dependencies on on other components in the system so that we 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 can ensure the lowest latency um, and and the highest throughput. It's obviously very rewarding, and I and I can't even begin to articulate how how proud I am of the team to to actually sort of deliver on on these on these sorts of results. And ultimately, I think you know this. Um, this sort of performance does translate into better applications and uh, cost savings for for customers, right? Because customers often have to balance uh, things, especially with databases. You know, they have to balance things like the amount of 
memory that the database is going to use um, versus the the disk speed and, and and often if the disk speed isn't up to scratch you you end up having to put more and more cash into into the database and, and all of those things cost money for example and being able to lower the overhead lower the the amount of uh, latency that an application is is consuming means that a, 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 an end user or a developer can can now do more with less and in in this current environment it's uh, it's it's something which is top of mind mm. i think um chris looking at you know thinking about the history of storage and in terms of the development of storage arrays storage platforms new devices coming out we've seen an evolution where our vendors have brought out generations of products as new technologies come to market. So you see that, you know, the latest processes in storage arrays, you see the latest drives, you see the latest uh, bus technology. So for you as a company, for Undat, this is not just a sort of a fixed one-time process. You know, you'll be looking, as you've already pointed out, at the next device generations and how you actually continue to improve performance. So just because we've had a good um, result today, doesn't mean there isn't a lot of work going on behind the scenes to work with the latest technology and really make sure that this level of performance keeps going. Exactly that, yes. I mean, you, you can roll in a, a new set of, um, a, you know, new node type into your clusters and, you know, over time migrate all the data to those new node types and turn the old ones off. So you can, in effect, get a faster, more performance array, as we would say in the old days, for absolutely you know no change at all to your kubernetes setup in some respects i think um i think over the last year i've been working um out on that i i've kind of been thinking back about the history we're sometimes a bit bad in the technology industry at remembering what we did before and if we look back to the kind of map reduce and hadoop days we we realized you know many many years ago now that the data sets and the amount of data and the data performance we were being asked for by our end users was so big that we took the compute to the data rather than taking the data to the computer. So we moved all of our compute workload onto the nodes where all the storage was and moved it closer together. Mm, and I think yep. if you look at Kubernetes, I've been doing a bit of work and talking at conferences like KubeCon with you know companies like Enterprise DB. You know, their strategy is all around how do we do cloud native Postgres? How do we bring Kubernetes as, you know, the delivery platform to run Postgres at scale for our customers and make it easier for customers to automate that whole process with operators to kind of autopilot all that service for them? So in that case, you kind of look at these kind of two things, these two kind of parallel streams happening. So, you know, the data sets getting bigger and data you know performance being needed needing more data performance for these applications and you look at these data companies or these app database companies and they have this kind of kubernetes first approach F for me you know anyone who has been working in kubernetes from the very beginning we started off with you know stateless clusters with no storage in i think it's pretty yeah. obvious now that every single kubernetes user and every single Kubernetes operator should have a data on Kubernetes strategy. And this cloud native storage, you know, how do I get a strategy that I can start small and scale as my cluster grows, re refresh, change my nodes to newer, faster node types, and run in this kind of hyper-converged or compute only, this very flexible architecture. For me, I, I, I don't see any other option but this as the future of where we're going to go with the industry. Mm. And I'll, I'll add something I think that I guess Alex can answer there. You just highlighted something I think which is quite interesting, and that's 
the sort of closeness of the relationship with the database vendors, um, Chris, you just sort of highlight in the fact that, you know, you've worked with them to present this and to and to look at it. I think where your technology has a value going forward is the fact that there's going to be that layer of more complex application requirements. And those applications aren't going to want to have to manage physical devices, you know, NVMe drives and have to worry about the resiliency and the recovery of all of that. At the same time, we don't want to necessarily put in storage solutions to make that work, as in, you know, big sh shared storage anymore. But we need a middle layer that does that work for us, that actually says, okay, application needs this requirements, here's the, the capability of the underlying device, and somebody manages the efficiency of that in between whilst maintaining resiliency and performance and everything. And that's, Alex, I think, where your technology is headed, which is, in lots of respects, mirroring what Chris just said, I think. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, So what we have is... We have with Kubernetes, we have a declarative environment where developers can specify what they need out of their um, out of their infrastructure, and and Kubernetes acts as that abstraction layer and and makes the resources available. And the the, the latest pattern in that in that space is, as Chris mentioned, the use of operators, which kind of opt uh, automates additional resources like these database applications um, within within the environment. And, and they make databases as declarative as any other application is to developers. So a developer can now, with a tiny bit of YAML, spin up a database on demand, effectively creating your own database as a service in, in, in your own environment. And just like you mentioned, right, it's one of the one of the foundations for, for a lot of these uh, stateful applications running in Kubernetes is that we have years and decades of architectural patterns that, that make assumptions that that the storage layer is providing that availability, the strong consistency, the the failover and and, and, and perhaps um, uh, might be working for you know security and disaster recovery and others and other levels of data service. So so it's 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 all of that uh, coming together and and what we see now is that with these with these sort of environments, with NVMe drives, with modern infrastructure, that we can hit millions of IOPS and tens of gigabytes per second on on relatively commoditized uh, environments, and and then you you add a layer of data services with um, a container native storage solution, and then you add. The, the the patterns uh, like operators and Kubernetes into the mix, um, and you have a ready-made infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, you know, that for for your own for your own environments, and this continues to 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 expand, you know. So so we 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 see today additions into the Linux kernel, for example, and additions into uh, the way we disaggregate those physical devices with CXL, for example, to to take advantage of all of these. Uh, of all of this uh, commoditized uh, environment, and and it's it's going to be exciting. We, we we you know we we haven't gotten there. We're continuing to get there, and it's going to continue to improve, basically. Absolutely, um, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. You know, that's a, a great prediction for 2023, 2024, and as we go further. If you were a customer today, though, or a potential customer. How would you take that report and use the, the data that's contained within it to actually help you understand what's going on? You know, what would you recommend that customers did to help them understand what they should be doing with their storage and how it might affect their application deployments? I think one of the things that is um, 
that is probably poorly understood is the storage um, understanding the storage requirements of most applications and, and and traditionally this is not something that developers have found easy right you know if you look at the attributes of storage they can be measured in lots of different vertices you know you you, you look at um, sure performance for example but also things like uh, durability and availability and failover capability and, and all of these things and the security and data services that that get layered on top and all of those have uh, have an impact on on the overall uh, requirements of a system so so i think one of the one of the takeaways is as developers become the decision makers in in defining the storage systems they need to better understand uh, the impacts and the requirements of those different storage related attributes to to their environment so for example is their application throughput focused or is it uh, low latency focused or is it um, you know is is uh, is is the availability and failover times and you know recovery point objectives the most important thing for them uh, and it's balancing out those those compromises so I think understanding uh, understanding the report and understanding you know how the different systems work and interact with popular applications like and popular databases helps to 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 give uh, end users the, the ability to to make those decisions and, and and helps evaluate the requirements Chris and what would you add to that from your perspective yeah I, I think the first thing the report says to me is you know looking at the range of options the level of maturity of having data in Kubernetes. I think that's the first thing I look at that and say, actually, the first thing that people should take away is it's not something that is the abnormal, it's more the normal. I think from my point of view, you know, having worked in the Kubernetes space since the very beginning, I think when we first started, there was no storage solution and there was no ingress solution. And there, there are all these kind of holes around the edges of Kubernetes. I think we're at the point now where the Kubernetes component itself is really well understood and I think the focus now for me is making sure you have storage below it and networking above it to make sure it's usable by those end applications the only thing I would say on the, on the flip side of it is once you put storage into a Kubernetes cluster the life cycle of that storage becomes the life cycle of that cluster so almost there's different tiers of storage that are going to be needed and also when you think about things like backup and recovery you don't want to back up a Kubernetes cluster to a Kubernetes cluster. So you're still going to need these an external kind of storage solution, um, object solution somewhere in your data centers or in your public clouds. But in your Kubernetes clusters, I would be putting in by default a storage solution. And, you know, from the report, you know, I'd like to think that Onda has a good chance of being selected given the um, performance and um, deterministic performance it gives but I think in my mind I, I've kind of jokingly referred to it sometimes to some customers as, as persistent scratch mm -hmm. because when it comes time to you know Kubernetes there's three releases a year so every four months you need to either upgrade in place or you need to tear down and redeploy a new cluster potentially so just thinking about kind of those two those two different cadences, we've been used to storage hanging around forever and, and Kubernetes every four months disappears almost. So just kind of thinking through those two different problem domains and making sure kind of as Alex was saying is you, you look at the application requirements 
and you look at the operational requirements as well because those are also important to get right but for me i'd be putting at least some kind of persistent storage into every kubernetes cluster because the world of microservices and this kind of disaggregated and every one of these microservices potentially needing to you know capture their own state and have their own um, transactional database potentially this just opens up so many more solutions in Kubernetes that your end users can make use of as well. So I guess at the end of that point, Chris, I, I guess we should ask you as well. Um, is there anything you found um, interesting and anything surprised you out of um, compiling the report yourself? I tell you what I thought was really interesting, and this is something that it might not be very popular, but it might actually um, cause a few, ruffle a few feathers. And that's, for me, I was really interested in the difference between the commercial and the open source platforms because I just wonder wh whether there's a different focus in those two different groups. One, looking to provide functionality and capability from one, one perspective, but maybe the, from the commercial side, people have come along and looked at it more from a technology history, you know, where we've been in the industry over the last 30 years and how performance has really been, really been important. And I think... I was surprised that there was such a difference between the, the two different platforms. But actually, when I dug down into it, I could actually see how the solutions had been architected. And it was pretty obvious that there was, in some solutions, not a particular degree of caching, or there were some other things that were sort of self-limiting within the architecture because the architecture had been designed a certain way. But I was just surprised that there was such a big difference on some of the platforms. And as an example, say, I think the way OpenEBS have gone down of having these pluggable storage components is quite quite neat, but actually it hasn't really worked because the one that they really want to get working isn't available yet, so you're sort of still stuck on the backward backward one. And I, I just wonder whether that was really a, a good design in the long run. As, you know, It sort of seemed like it might have been a good idea because it was sort of replicating the database world where you have storage engines where you can pull one out and plug in a different one. Not sure it really worked. So I think that to me surprised me most, you know, the difference between the, the commercial, I think, and the uh, and the open source solutions. Really interesting that as well, yeah. I, I guess I seem to remember a quote from a Red Hat days where someone said, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go, if you want to bring everyone along, you're always going to end up with a solution that's a compromise about all those different views and visions in the open source community. It's maybe a purist view of performance versus um you know as you said that feature and function that you're looking to strive to deliver something for everyone in the open source products that kind of aligns with that i guess yeah absolutely absolutely okay so here's here's a wrap-up discussion then so if you look at the timeline of what we've done so far we looked at the very base fio type scenarios we've then focused more on database and applications specifically Alex sort of touched on a little area what I thought that I thought was quite interesting here, and that's, you know, there's there's more to an application than just can you actually get to the storage and store and re retrieve stuff. There's you know that there's that consistency, there's that absolute data integrity. So maybe you know wh where do we head next in terms of what we test? Do we test just the next generation of technology, or do we start looking at things like failure modes and looking at how these solutions work when you kill a device or you kill a node? That to me perhaps seems like you know, and another area that could be really interesting to look at is, well, what happens when things go wrong? I think you've hit the nail on the head there. That that would be, certainly be the next interesting avenue to go down. We've looked at synthetic performance. We've looked at how applications perform in, in, in these environments. Um, 
it would be really interesting to look at um, you know the consistency integrity durability of, of, of the data um, but also um, the speed of you know failovers and, and the whole uh, and, and how the storage system contributes to the HA of the of the environment but also as we see in sort of a lot of uh, real life deployments today we, we see you know kubernetes clusters deployed across availability zones and across data centers for 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 disaster recovery and 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 you know the place that the storage system has in that stack to to help provide those those data disaster recovery and and recovery times and recovery objectives uh for those for those systems I think I'd add another one for you, Chris, as well, and that's the way you've talked about the longevity of a cluster and how you you, may, you might be tearing things down, rebuilding over the course of time. I think I'd like to see how well vendors, and I don't know how you test this, whether it be just paper, paper testing of features or whether this would be an actual test, but I'd like to see how you could test whether um, or how easy it is to move data between clusters to the point of view of, you know, you're tearing down a cluster and you're rebuilding it with the next generation of Kubernetes, but I, I don't want to have to write all my data to an S3 bucket to then pull it all back. You know, what, what are they going to be the clever solutions to get that problem solved? Maybe that's an area for testing. Yeah, and I, I think that's a whole other podcast in itself, but it's it's these operational <laughs> concerns. And I, I yeah. know for the, the, the KubeCon talk, I, I, I set up exactly kind of the scenario you were talking about there, Alex, where... I had single database replicated the storage layer and then replicated database just using dumb storage, if that makes sense. And then we unplugged a node from the cluster or we powered it off using one of the cloud consoles as I was running it using local NVMEs on cloud instances and looking at that recovery and reconvergence time. But beyond that, you're also thinking about what's the actual impact on the end application do I have yeah. an outage of my database or is my database going to promote a primary to a replica? And then there's you know, even more complicated scenarios where you say, actually, if I lose even uh, you know, sophisticated cloud native databases, um, when you get into like the Cassandras and the cockroaches, these things, how long is the rebuild impact given the size of the data structures and the size of the NVMEs underneath? Would it be worth actually having storage replication and database replication to reduce you know the time or reduce the risk period where we we're we're only running with one you know a copy less of data so i think there's um i think there's a lot of interesting kind of studies and kind of things to do it it kind of takes you back to the old you know two node clustering kind of and all the all the calculations we used to do when we were looking at a much much simpler problem space with two copies and now you know, we've got networks we don't own, servers we don't own, facilities we've no idea where our data is, and we're trying to build solutions on top of them. So I think there's a, I think there's a the fascinating operational kind of side to look at next. Yep, sounds like we've got plenty to keep our, ourselves busy for the next few years, uh, which is quite good. Quite like the idea of that. So in the, in the meantime, though, if people would like to go and download this report, it's on your website. Uh, can you give us an idea where that we should point them so that they can go find it? Absolutely. It's uh, available on, on that.io forward slash benchmarking. Perfect. Guys, it's been a great conversation. It's been really interesting to see some of the, you know, the, the nuances and the detail in this. And it was great working to produce the output. I'm also very glad that it had the, app, the desired result at the end of it that you wanted, because that would have been interesting if it didn't, wouldn't it? An interesting conversation. 
but obviously you know it's um it's produced something i think that's been going to be really useful for people to go and help them understand what's going on in these environments so i guess send them over to the ondat website go and have a look go and download the report and let us know what you think we're very interested to hear what people's feedback would be but for now thanks for joining me i really appreciate it and look forward to catching up with you in 2023 you've been listening to storage unpacked for show notes and more subscribe at storageunpacked.com Follow us on Twitter at Storage Unpacked or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Storage Unpacked Podcast. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.